The era of big podcasting is over. Hello, uh, welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hey Simon. Hey Simon. Today we will be looking at the second part of our Bill Clinton trilogy and discussing his first term as president through the 94 midterms and on to the 96 election. But before we do that, uh, we have a little bit of news from, from Vaughn. Um, Vaughn, you had a unexpected uh, contact, I suppose, reach out to you, and then um, some news recently. Do you want to fill in our audience as to the uh, slightly exciting news that's come across your desk over the last uh, few weeks and months? Yes, I can. The the slightly exciting news. It's, <laughs> I guess it's slightly exciting for other people who are like, oh, that's cool. But for me, it's like... The big thing. What is happening? And quite um, right, too. Well done, you. On you go. In- introduce this mysterious thing. Yes. Um. So I was headhunted by Sage Publications to write for their research and methods collection. Um. So I'll be writing... I am currently writing a an article um guiding early researchers on how to approach cartoons as primary sources for historical research well i mean anytime you can say the phrase i was headhunted that is always but then to be on the sort of sage publishing side of things well first of all congratulations very well deserved um Thank you. I, I assume you're good at your job. Most of the time we speak is about Mitt Romney, but I'm, I'm sure the rest of the stuff you do <laughs> is, is, pretty, is pretty good as well. <laughs> I mean, if, if my writing of the fan fiction that you love so much is any indication of the quality of my historical research, then I think I should be good. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a really exciting thing. And it's the first, I, I signed my first publishing contract with them, with Sage Publications, which is just mind blowing because they're one of the top five academic publishers in the world. And it's, I've just really been reeling from this for a solid month. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's I, don't, I don't, I don't slightly want to, exciting. slightly exciting for other people who may be listening to it. Very exciting for Toby and I, who are sort of living through kind of osmosis of this and then utterly thrilling for yourself who, mm-hmm. I mean, could not be more richly deserved. Um, like I say, we probably don't spend as much time a- around you observing your historical um, acumen as uh, a- as the people at your university do. But it- it's even just the limited time we get to spend uh, with you and the time that uh, our audience gets to spend with you. I think it's clear that uh, you were heading for good things. So I don't want to say that, you know, you joined our podcast and then you got a publishing deal, but those <laughs> that is technically the the events as they happened so um I I mean this I appreciate you saying all of that yes and I would never say that those two things aren't linked my (laughs) cv is much fuller now and it's this this is such a brilliant opportunity to kind of practice and learn how to how to, to present historical research to many different audiences so this is this is certainly helping me and my academic acumen. Well, I'm glad. And if nothing else, you've got to learn about Ross Perot, which has been. Oh a- my God! Yes. 
an adventure in itself. And then in this, for researching this episode, you you got another subject, which we'll probably touch on later. Do you want to tease the audience as to the intrigue you've been looking into? It's kind of slightly off topic, but sort of connected. It, it's absolutely off topic. And I'm <laughs> going to talk about it. I'm we're, like, it's wild, guys. You're, you're going to love this because I spent a good hour and a half of just tangential research on this on this one topic um it's about cults and intrigue and corpse defiling wow sounds like sounds like my last holiday with toby um (laughs) okay shall we get back to the the episode uh but congratulations again that was excellent and thoroughly deserved okay Back to someone of uh, equal academic standing, President Bill Clinton. Um, (laughs) uh, On our last podcast, we we covered the New Democrats and the 92 election. And we obviously saw saw the the victory for Bill Clinton in that and uh, Democrats taking back the White House for the the first time since, since Carter. I mean, you know, you've got, you've got Reagan and you've got Bush and, then you had uh, old Slick Willie uh, coming into the picture. Uh, so we have Clinton picking up uh, picking up the House with 370 electoral votes. And despite losing nine, nine seats in the House, Democrats won both the House and the Senate. So, Toby, can you kick us, uh, kick us off and kind of just talk a little bit about how Clinton was perceived immediately after he was elected? I think um, immediately after Clinton was elected especially from conservatives, there was a sense of illegitimacy. You know, he had only won 43% of the vote. They had been a third-party candidate in, in Ross Perot. He was seen as the sort of the coming of the the boomer generation, the 60s generation, who supposedly, you know, they didn't have really fixed ideas. They were a little bit you know, odd. They had different kinds of morals. And people who had worked in say, the H.W. Bush administration and then Republicans on in Congress kind of loathed um, Bill Clinton. <laughs> and then people like Newt Gingrich, who would be uh, Clinton's main adversary, saw Clinton as a kind of weak character. They, they respected his intelligence, because which they could tell uh, not only from his academic um, achievements, but... I mean, just being in a room with him, he 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 almost spellbounded Gingrich in conversation. But Gingrich went back to Arkansas and talked to a lot of people who had worked with uh, Clinton or against Clinton, and many people said that Clinton was weak. Like he wasn't someone who had any like strong values. He wasn't going to push through legislation that he he deeply cared about. He could be rolled, basically. And then the Clinton White House was a little bit of a mess. You know, he had a lot of young 30-year-olds. Many of them didn't have deep connections to Congress. Clinton was scared about not having deep connections to Congress because he remembered um, Jimmy Carter. When Jimmy Carter was in the White House, one of his main problems is he brought the Georgia Mafia in. Many of them didn't have uh, deep relationships with the people in in Congress, and, and, and they had become a little bit isolated. So Bill Clinton comes in with this view that he's he's a little bit weak, he's a little bit illegitimate, and he also feels that he must tap into 
liberal and uh, democratic leaders in Congress to try to make sure that 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 strategy is conducted both by the White House and in Congress, which means actually that his new democratic um, policy and his new democratic f- philosophy is a little bit stymied by the liberals in Congress. He has to sort of manage what they're going to think about. So he doesn't come out quickly with his welfare reform bill or his um, his ideas of a balanced budget amendment and things like that. He's much more looking towards balancing his own ideas with those of the of the Liberal Congress. And then on the other side, he has a lot of aggravation, a lot of pushback from Republicans who think he's weak, who think that if they push, he'll collapse, basically, and who think he's a little bit illegitimate, really. So it, it, it is a quite tough start it, immediately with the impression that um, Bill Clinton, that people have of Bill Clinton in the immediate period after he, he was elected. So looking at the legislation side of things for Clinton, there's several things we can look at, that be, be that on the budget side, as, as you mentioned, and inheriting the, the massive budget deficits from, from Bush and Reagan. And we can talk about Clinton aim to tackle that. There's the Clinton crime bill. We have Clinton's plans for health care. And we have, we have NAFTA, which originally was agreed under Bush's presidency. What were Clinton's legislative priorities and how did he manage to achieve those? I think that his key legislative priorities were on the budget. He wanted a, a middle class tax cut. He he was he always considered himself you know the, the representative of the the middle income people that he felt brought them to him to Washington. Healthcare reform was was a big thing. He wanted to make sure that as many people were covered under a new healthcare reform bill. Um, he tried to bring in a number of interesting cabinet appointments. Some of them were stymied. He there was a lady Zoe Beard who was supposed to be um, part of his legal counsel, and what happened to her is that because she had some issues with paying immigrant labor at home. She she couldn't be uh, nominated. And um, although Democrats pushed for her to be nominated, Clinton basically just gave up. The RBJ selection onto the Supreme Court, um, although it was successful, the process was really, really difficult. And the, and the media captured that. Clinton also had a problem with um, the gays and the military thing. He wasn't, he didn't really, like he, he saw the, the gays and the military thing as an aside. Like he, once he came into the White House, Clinton really wanted to focus on healthcare and the budget. But he did have this, 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 this thing in his campaign that he was going to try to get gays into the military. But then there was, social and media backlash to this this idea a journalist had caught him advocating for this and what he said was um splashed in the media and and people were pushing back against it uh people in the military were against it general colin powell was against it and although clinton 
wanted to make sure that the 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 men and women of the LGBTQ could, you know, be in the military without being attacked or harassed or fired. What Colin Powell ended up coming up with was this weird idea called don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. Which don't ask, don't tell meant that, well, if, um, you know, the people in the military didn't say that they were gay, then, then the um, administrators couldn't ask. And it was really, it was a weird compromise that nobody liked the, the, the Clinton's LGBT um, supporters didn't like it. The, you know, the conservatives didn't like it. And it already showed that Clinton would collapse if any pressure was put on him. And then this was really a preamble for a lot of the things that went on in his first term um, on the issue of passing some of um, his new Democrat legislation, things like NAFTA and the crime bill. He did have some success, you know, I mean, NAFTA had been a H.W. Bush um, idea or, or legislation, but Clinton worked with the Republicans in Congress. Many people who had supported uh, Ross Perot were against it. Many people, labor unions were against it. But, and then some Republicans who were concerned about trade were also against it. But he, he was able to push it through with more support from the Republicans than the Democrats. He was able to push through a quite, you know, repressive crime bill, which featured more police, um, pri- longer prison sentences, uh, boot camps for j- young drug drug users, and an expansion of the uh, the federal death penalty, which was pushed through, um, mostly and led by um, Senator Joe Biden. So he he had some success on those fronts. But then when it came to the budget, he, Alan Greenspan came to him and said, actually, we can't have these uh, middle class t- tax cuts. The budget, we're going to have to balance um, this budget or we're going to have to deal with a lot of the expansionary fiscal policy that was practiced by the Reagan administration, where they basically spent a lot of money on the military. They didn't really cut taxes or they didn't really, um, they cut taxes a lot, but they didn't really drop spending. And then they didn't even really cut social programs that much because the, the Democrats in the Congress were um, against them doing that. So what Clinton was left with was a big budget hole. So he couldn't have a middle-class tax cut that he envisaged doing. So again, his priorities unless they were Republican priorities like NAFTA and the crime bill, weren't successful in in this um, first term. And a big thing that also wasn't successful was this health care reform bill. Um, Clinton had Hillary Hillary Clinton get really in front of this. Um, You know, she wasn't a um, first lady who was just there to take take pictures, do charity events, work on poverty she was really you know almost like a co-president on this healthcare yeah. reform she she pushed it she worked with people in congress to, to get it through 
Clinton held up a, a healthcare card in, in Congress and said, everyone is going to have this card. Um, we're going to work um, with, with um, members of Congress, uh, Truman, Lyndon Johnson, all of these great liberal stores have failed. This was supposed to be the great monument of the Clinton uh, administration, this healthcare reform bill, but it was ravaged by the medical providers, medical device providers, uh, doctors, ravaged by them in a, in a long and quite painful ad campaigns were, were put up with, um, you know, sort of middle-class uh, men and women looking at the long, wonky healthcare reform bill that um, Hillary Clinton had put, put together and seeing that, you know, this is, this is just a, a lot of government. There's so much government there. Reagan had made people really against government now. And the, the, the reform bill provides too, too much choices. There was too many things to do. It wasn't simple. Newt Gingrich said, you know, like, um, if you bring a simpler bill, don't make it too long. We might look at it. But because it was long, because it was wonky, because Hillary Clinton was really pushing it, mm-hmm. um, because there was a lot of, there's basically a lot of um, antagonism to it with, an, with a number of stakeholders and interest groups. Clinton couldn't get his big healthcare reform bill passed through. And what it's what emerges is Clinton is really stymied, as I said earlier, by the liberals in his uh, party who are pushing him one way, the conservatives who think he's weak, like Newt Gingrich, and then by the fact that although the budget that he put forward was quite successful, the economy picked up, unemployment went down, the bond market started churning, Alan Greenspan was really um, complimentary about the, the, the reforms that Bill Clinton had pushed through. The public didn't really seem to think that Clinton was strong. They thought he was weak. They thought he, he, he would either push through liberal programs like the healthcare reform program that no one no one wanted you know or he would just roll on things so the republicans messaging on clinton was really getting through and clinton was facing some frustration with many of the programs that he had um they they really inspired him and that he wanted to push forward so clinton had quite difficult um first term and then you had also had the uh, the failure in in Africa with um, Black Hawk Down, and you also had the tragedy in Rwanda with the the Hutus and the Tutsis, where Clinton, where many people um, in a number of different countries uh, were trying to get America to be involved, but uh, Clinton was against that. He didn't want. He kept saying, you know, it's the same thing with, with Kosovo. He didn't want his own Vietnam. He'd, he'd been part of the generation that fought against. He didn't want his own Vietnam. He didn't really want to get involved. But the the tragedy was unfolding on uh, new channels like CNN, which again kind of whittled down public um, respect for the Clinton presidency. So he was having quite a difficult time in his uh, his first term, even though the economy was going going well. I think perception of Clinton was was, was really poor, and the, and the the Republicans were really winning the the media battle against him. Absolutely. Um, 
Vaughn, is there anything you'd like to add, maybe just from your own perspective, as far as kind of some of the stuff that we talked about on the, on the legislative? I mean, it is kind of clear, as Toby was kind of painting the picture there, that Clinton did have certain more liberal ideas, but I guess essentially the things that he kind of became known for are maybe the things that we would more associate on the sort of centre-right side of things, as far as, yeah. you know, trying to establish a, a stronger economy, you know, tr- trying to bring through, you know, um, sort of quote-unquote sensible uh, compromises on, on certain things, being <laughs> be that something hideous like don't ask, don't tell, or uh, be that, you know, such as uh, having to, uh, you know, take away the, the middle-class uh, tax cuts, which he had, um, he had, he had promised. Have you got any, any thoughts on the kind of legislative uh, side of things, uh, even if they're they're just uh, <laughs> bashing poor old Bill? Um, yeah, I mean, Toby did an excellent job with all of that. It was, it was very um, succinct and, and accurate. I think the only things that I would kind of add would be around the more social um, things that he did promise in his campaign, which I we can talk further about campaign promises later with the <laughs> midterms, but um, in his first couple weeks, he rolled back uh, rolled back um, Reagan and Bush restrictions on family planning and abortion, mm-hmm. and kind of championed the the phrase "safe, legal, rare" for abortion, um, which rock on whatever so that that was his his main kind of thing then that was immediately after his inauguration yeah um and then with gay rights i could talk about this one for hours but (laughs) i'll spare everyone that one um yeah so so he promised he promised gay, gay rights and a lot of people after Don't Ask, Don't Tell felt very betrayed mm-hmm. because they voted for him on that kind of, like with that as a core issue for them. Um, and it's just abhorrent to say, you can be here, but no one's allowed to talk about your sexual identity or sexual orientation mm-hmm. or preferences. Like the whole idea of it is just like, who came up with that? And who <laughs> thought that was okay? And apparently it was all of them. So it, because it like people were against it and nobody really liked it, but it wasn't repealed until 2011. Hmm. Like people had to like it enough to keep it around. Right. Well, and then yeah. he, he also, he, he said that um, he condemns homophobia and discrimination against people with HIV but like he still signed Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And right at the end of his first term, he signed the Defense of Marriage Act, which is like, how can you say that you're against homophobia and then sign that into law and be like, I don't agree with this as you're signing it. Come on, man. Um, So Defense of Marriage Act was the conservative baby in this time um, saying that marriage is between one man and one woman, essentially. That was that was the bottom line of the bill. And that's what America needed, obviously. Oh my uh, yeah. and it like he said that it was allegedly to head off a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage. 
because that would have been harder to repeal or overturn. So mm-hmm. by him signing Defense of Marriage Act, it prevented Republicans from going further or conservatives from going further and, and kind of putting something a bit more in stone mm-hmm. than an act, an act that could be repealed. But Defense of Marriage wasn't repealed until 2013. So like, and people still now credit him as the first president to champion gay rights and just like, absolutely not. I I really, I have such a problem with people praising him on gay rights because like he, he outlawed discrimination against openly gay federal employees and he had openly gay federal employees and, and members in, in his administration. But that's not championing gay rights. That's tolerating them to the extent that you're appeasing a voting block and not even appeasing them because you still signed Don't Ask, Don't Tell in DOMA. And I, I, I have a major issue with him being a gay rights icon. Um, but beyond yeah, that. Yeah, I think most definitely he, he, he wasn't a, a gay, gay rights icon, but he was, he was constrained by the fact that it was a deeply conservative moment, which is the, the sense that I get from, from reading about um, the early 90s mm. That you know, people generally were, you know, like uh, polling was against um, gay people um, being free in the military. It was against that. And Clinton, I guess he wasn't that strong willed. He wasn't going to try mm-hmm. to convince the public about why they were wrong on something. He, he's something, someone, I guess, who always wanted to feel like he would compromise or try to make people feel good. So yeah, he wasn't like this great advocate, mm-hmm. but he yeah, but the constraints that he had were were quite, as I don't know, I, quite quite powerful. I agree with that for sure. That he he tried a bit, but he backed down very yeah, yeah. easily. Like, and the thing or... about this, the the Colin Powell thing is that, um, Clinton was thinking about really pushing forward, as as you said, but mm-hmm. um, and then Colin Powell had a completely different idea and instinct about this issue and eventually Clinton settled on the Colin power line but he that wasn't the ideal world that he wanted but he I, just wasn't tough enough I guess I, I get that kind of like appeasement and working with them just to get something through but yeah. Al Gore was super against don't ask don't tell and he told Bill Clinton do not sign this it'll get your like sign an executive order and it will get overturned but let that happen do not put your name on this Mm. and I think he should have done that like I I get that he tried and he made some advancements but I absolutely disagree with calling him a champion of gay rights he did not champion shit like he he allowed conservatives to just destroy his campaign promises and that like Yes, he tried, but he did not try enough to be a champion of it, in my yeah. opinion. I think ch- ch- a champion. I'd when when you, I, I don't know if Bill Clinton ever was 
sort of propped up to be a champion as such you guys probably know more into this research than i have but for me a, a champion isn't probably someone who's looking over their right shoulder at a re-election campaign as being more important yeah. than, than giving rights to however millions of people that there are in a in a country and i, I with, with this and with other things it, it always felt like the goal of the goal of the white house at the time seemed to be re-election and to make sure that they weren't pissing off however many millions of people there were in the center right who might go for Clinton again um mm-hmm. or even the center left um and the point you bring up toby about it kind of being a more conservative time you know as far as gay rights i think that that is absolutely correct and mm-hmm. even george w bush i think you know 2004 you know there, there was calls for like you know one of the things he can kind of do to, to to rally rally support in his base was to come out against gay marriage you know and you know i i guess sometimes mm-hmm. we we think of you know gay rights now is kind of being like almost the pc thing to do you know you, you wouldn't come out now for the most part and say I don't think a, a gay person should be, you know, allowed in the military or, or whatever. But I, I think we do have to kind of remember that, you know, Clinton Clinton's aim, right or wrong, maybe it was say wrongly, but wasn't to champion the ideas that he got elected on. It was to make sure that he didn't piss off the people who wanted uh, their votes in '94. And I, I guess he, that's that's the kind of the, the sorry '96. And I guess that that's. That's where, where he kind of ended up. And as we say, we ended up with a president who was, as Toby said, you know, kind of weak-willed on certain thing. And as mm-hmm. you said, Vaughn, you know, if you have Al, Al Gore telling you, you know, don't sign this, don't put your name to it, maybe maybe that's historically the better thing to do. And also kind of in the moment, as far as your own supporters, the best thing to do. But I, I think Clinton almost wanted to be seen as someone who was able to reach across the aisle and bring it bring in support and all this kind of thing yeah exactly and then like even in 2008 like both hillary clinton and barack obama were still against their marriage they they talk about it as like an evolution and all this yeah yeah yeah. my my thoughts have evolved and all this kind of thing and yeah and and i can imagine you know at yale in the in the 60s and stuff or like columbia in the 80s like they they would have been pro like gay rights what they did is they came into politics and they massaged their perspective to suit the moment well there's that famous clinton clip from the 90s where she's like i do not support gay marriage and another other side of it like bernie 10 years earlier like what are you talking about gay people deserve as many rights as anyone else and that's that's the thing that like I'm that makes me so mad about this is like I absolutely understand the political reasons that you would have to concede on some issues, but you don't get to speak at the HIV AIDS um, mm. conference that they had in '95 and say like we're working on a, a cure and a vaccine for HIV AIDS and we condemn homophobia and discrimination against people with HIV and we're totally on your side. And then as you're signing, don't ask, don't tell, like telling the nation, oh, I really don't want to do this. I really care about gay people. And you're signing the Defense of Marriage Act in September 96, two months ahead of the election, knowing that you're doing it for the election. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Completely compromising on your morals. If those are your your more moralistic views, like there's, I, I get kind of, 
conceding on some issues with conservatives for like the budget or like healthcare or those things. But when they're the social issues of do people have rights, it's like the president is supposed to be the moral compass of the nation. And if that is your but personal I, I inclination and you were voted in on those those morals, I think you have a duty to the office to be like, I disagree with this legislation. I'm not signing it right now instead of staring at the camera with the pen in your hand and being like, this is wrong. Like, come on. Well, I would think, I actually think that Clinton, I don't think Clinton saw himself as a socially liberal president they were bringing that i think that the group that he came out of with you know uh, the the new democrats people like al from mm-hmm. they thought of tempering the new politics of the 60s and 70s the the identitarian politics mm-hmm. that that the focus on social issues gay rights uh, women's rights women's liberation they really wanted to although they might have held those views privately, they really wanted to focus on what suburban middle-income voters thought about these issues. And at that time, they were not ready to have gays in the military. And and I think what Clinton really, really, really wanted to do was get his middle-class tax cut, was uh, sort out welfare, was um, try to push through policies on 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 education on healthcare. i think that was really and i think it it's funny when we talk about this is clinton was kind of hit on the wares by the reaction in the public against his gays and military thing because he was really wanted to focus on the budget and it's sad to say but it was kind of an aside to, to them yeah at that moment. i no, i i definitely like i get that i just wish he hadn't i wish he hadn't pretended that like personally, morally, I love gay people, but I'm still gonna sign an act that says you can't like all of these negative rights for you that you like that like you can't do these things. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> if if you're gonna sign DOMA, don't say that you love gay people. <laughs> like that's Whoa. it's just a huge disconnect for me about him personally. That's like, come on, man. I think that's fair. And I, I think I think part of the issue is that Vaughn still might have some optimism in the office of the American president. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's exactly what it is, actually. <laughs> where, where, whereas uh, I'm certainly willing to accept that <laughs> all presidents are terrible. Yeah, don't listen to their words. Yeah. <laughs> Except in this impeachment trial. Do listen to those words. Do listen to those words. <laughs> and listen to uh, FDR 2.0, who is our new superior president. <laughs> Oh, and, and I guess that was basically the strategy, you know, um, cows power to Republicans, but try to pretend to Democrats and to liberals that you're big on the issues that they care about yes. socially. Which is and a that classic. Was, that, was a, that was the whole thing. That was the whole. That's, that's literally the whole, centrism. Yeah. Yeah. We can finish the, we can finish the podcast now. And yeah, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is that is a succinct uh, summation of, uh, of the Democratic line as possible. Well done, Toby. Yeah. Okay, well, that, that's history solved. Anyone good at geography? Uh, right, okay, we should probably we should probably move on from this before yeah. uh, uh, Vaughn gets too more upset. But she mm. has reason to, because, you know, fuck Bill Clinton. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, 
Okay. Uh, so on our next episode, we're going to be looking at the uh, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, and we might even have a, a very special guest for that. So, um, yep, look out for that. That uh, could be a very exciting one. However, um, that, uh, that scandal that we're not covering today, but we will be covering in the later episodes, was by no means the first scandal to hit the Clintons. Uh, Toby, can you uh, introduce our audience just a little bit to the, the Whitewater and Trippergate uh, scandals and uh, maybe just talk a little bit about how, maybe how they, they impacted uh, Clinton's popularity? I think Clinton was really hit by this revolution in, in media. The old media, you know, people like Walter Cronkite, they had tried to focus on giving you the details of the story. This was sort of the independent, uh, non-opinionated um, way. But now that you had a much more sort of balkanized form of media, you had a radio talk show uh, hosts, you had people like Rush Limbaugh. And so a story like the White Water Controversy was really big, a big, salacious tabloid story, even though it didn't have a lot of merits to it. So back in Arkansas, um, there was this guy called Jim McDougal, who set up this company called uh, the White Water Development Corporation. The business, it, was, it failed, but its purpose was to develop uh, vacation properties on land along the White River uh, in, in Arkansas. And I think the, the big thing that people were really looking for is it whether or not Bill Clinton tried to get a whether or not Bill Clinton pressured um, David Hale into providing an illegal three hundred thousand loan to one of the McDougals, the the Clinton's uh, partner in the Whitewater land deal. And um, the, the allegations were regarded as questionable because Hale had not mentioned Clinton in reference to the loan during the original FBI investigation. But because the Republicans were really big on, on this, uh, the FBI got involved. The Washington Post had a, you know, they were going to release um, information about Whitewater linking the Clintons to the, to, to the issue. And pe- members of the Clinton White House were like, Clinton, um, you, you've got to release the documents to, to, the, the, to the Washington Post. And, and maybe uh, because uh, Bob Dole was, was getting drips and drips of this and, and Dole wanted to be uh, president in 1996, uh, maybe you should elect a, a special counsel. But Clinton was like, I'm not going to elect a special counsel. Um, you need probable cause to um, have a special counsel uh, brought up, like, say, in the in the um, Watergate issue, but he was really forced by members of his staff. And then eventually they got Hillary Clinton who cared even less than Bill Clinton about this and didn't want to be bothered by it. Hillary Clinton was forced to accept that they had to hire um, a special counsel to deal with this white water issue. Other and the, the the Republicans were becoming more and more belligerent and more and more angry and, and creating more and more scandals. You also had the Seth Rich issue, which was uh, no, not Seth Rich, Vince Foster. Seth Rich is 
Hillary Clinton's issue um, <laughs> 20 years <laughs> later. But, many Clinton issues to keep but, um, the, but it, it will be in the second edition of the Clinton Wars, yeah, because <laughs> the first edition of this one. But yeah, you had the Vince Foster. Vince Foster was a guy called um, originally had grown up in Arkansas quite close to uh, Bill Clinton, and Clinton thought of him as even more intelligent than him. He rose up really quickly, became a, a lawyer, almost had a, he was a law partner. He had a 300,000 paid uh, law job in Arkansas, but then he moved to Washington to work with um, Bill Clinton as um, deputy uh, White House chief of staff. And, um, but the thing about Vince Foster is the pressure of Washington and the backbiting and the fighting that um, that was happening, and a lot of the negative publicity Bill Clinton was getting, all of that kind of got to him. He, he kind of wanted to go back to Arkansas to the nice um, sort of simple life that that he had. He he got depression. He was given uh, antidepressants by his, his doctor, and then um, eventually he he shot himself. And the, the Clintons were, were very, I mean, they were very sad about this because they, they had known um, Vince for a long time. Uh, Hillary has said that he had always been his favorite uh, lawyer. He was one of the best lawyers that she ever ever knew. And the, the Republicans, they took this story and then they wanted the special counsel, counsel to investigate. Conspiracy theories uh, abound about the fact or the fact, the 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 idea that Hillary Clinton was was cheating on Bill with with Vince, and um, that the Clinton had had Vince Foster killed, and this was, was another of the scandals that um, that they went through. They they had the Troopergate scandal, which was the idea that troopers who had worked for uh, the governor Bill Clinton in Arkansas had um, gotten women, you know, for, to, brought women to Bill Clinton, for Clinton to have um, sexual liaisons with. Um, there was the idea that Clinton had paid off members of the troopers. Again, nothing was found in the, the Troopergate story. Mm-hmm. Nothing was found in the Vince Foster story. Nothing was found in the Whitewater story. But Clinton eventually had to you know, get a special prosecutor and eventually uh, later on in 1998, um, the work of Ken Starr would come to light, especially when he found out about the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Mm -hmm. But but these scandals that ravaged Clinton in this early period, there was nothing to them, but it was the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle with with Mm -hmm. very young young journalists who needed these kinds of stories to, to, to sell papers and to to get advertising uh, advertising dollars and it, and it, it really caused the uh, it's almost like a spiral of, of negative opinion towards Clinton they, you know people just thought you know that there just there just has to be something wrong with him because there's all this stuff about him being being bad and being being immoral and being crooked and it started to really weigh down on the the Clinton administration have, have you guys read about travelgate or haircut gate no with Clinton so this this is ex- exactly in line with with what Toby's just saying about like the 24-hour news cycle and mm-hmm. trying to come up with something to pin on Clinton. So Travelgate 
and Haircut Gate were both in May 1993. And Travelgate was that Bill fired seven employees from the White House Travel Office. And the media was like, seven at once, something has to be going on. And they just sensationalized <laughs> it. And the public demanded these people be reinstated. Like, I don't even know what the travel office does for the White House. <laughs> but people in 93 were like, these seven people need to be like, need their jobs back. And it like they were fired for for um, financial improprieties or something. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, when at will, I mean, at will firing is still a thing, but it was um, Bill Clinton was like completely in his legal rights to fire these people for violating their contracts. And the media were like, he just fired them. So obviously he's covering something up. And it's like, okay. Um, and then haircut gate is even better. He got a haircut on Air Force One at Los Angeles International Airport for some reason. And they were on the runway for an hour for this haircut. And the Washington Post put this story on the front page of, of their uh, publication nine times in a six week period. And then later they, they said it was like the most expensive haircut of all time and that it was the most famous haircut since Samson's. And they were just sensationalizing <laughs> the fact that he got a haircut in a, in a plane. Um, and they said that he, he held up the runways for an hour and held up like, like all of these, these flights and everything. And an investigation found that there was only a two minute delay for one plane in all of it. Hilarious. <laughs> I love it. If we're just going to start making stuff up, um, I'm going to lead with uh, him possibly fathering a child who went on to become a historian who really likes uh, Christmas films. So mm. it has to be a gate, though. It has to. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, baby gate. I don't know. Baby gate. Baby gate 94. Baby gate. <laughs> I was born in 94. Too many similarities. Too many similarities. I think Watergate really poisoned the minds of. of a, a new generation yeah yeah yes. it, it, and uh one of the people whose minds it was it was poisoned was gingrich uh, newt gingrich mm. uh gingrich although watergate had been something that the republicans had suffered mm -hmm. that generation that came in and uh gingrich entered the congress in uh, 79 1980 they had really felt that um they could get the Democrats on corruption because the Democrats had got them on corruption. Mm -hmm. So Newt Gingrich came in and um, he, there was a House uh, congressional leader for the Democrats and he focused on the fact that um, he had signed a, a, a contract for a book deal with a publisher and um, said that it was an unnecessary expense and um, tried to have the Con congressional um, investigation against him and um, they didn't really get him on his publishing deal but but Gingrich kept banging home you know to reporters that this guy was corrupt and uh, the, the, he was a bad person for several things that, that they investigated him and found a, a, a series of minor minor infringements and then he was finally removed so it was that kind of and, and there's another story of um, Gingrich being uh, talking about this particular congressman 
um, saying, saying, you know, actually rude and um, mean things about him. And then Tip O'Neill coming in and saying like, this is, this is Congress. Like, why are you saying this? Uh, that this we don't talk to about to people like this. This is un-American. You're saying he's un-American, which is un-American. You can't say that in here. And this Tip O'Neill was the old sort of stalwart of Congress. And then um, Trent Lott saw Tip O'Neill doing this, and he said, "Well, we should probably sanction Tip O'Neill and remove this from the the record." And the re and it was removed from the record. So basically, people like Gingrich, Trent Law, this new generation of Republicans, they just didn't care about those old ideas of civility between um, members of Congress and um, the institution. <laughs> they were, you know, they were Molotov cocktail throwers. They they really felt that the the the, the House Democrats, especially because you know the Reagan was winning barnstorming majorities uh, in, in 1980 and 1984, but the House wasn't wasn't turning. Yeah. And um, a lot of the House um, Republicans, they were used to being in the minority. They they felt, you know, if this is kind of, you know, the minority is kind of fine. You know, if the Democrats <laughs> give us a little, you know, crumbs, it'll be fine. But the new Republicans, you know, full of full of vim and full of, you know, ambition, they were not interested in, in you know, permanent minority status. A lot of the House Democrats were in the positions they were in because of the power of incumbency, because a lot of Southern um, Democratic seats just wouldn't change because you know people's parents voted, voted Democrat. So they used these, these kind of simple and really um, disingenuous corruption claims, um, the, the new 24-hour media cycle uh, to build up scandals against people and to try to really break apart the the democratic um, uh, majority over time, and that's the context that Bill Clinton finds himself in when he meets the 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 new kinds of Republicans heading into 1994. And in 1994, what happens is that. Bill Clinton has, you know, the, the as Dick Morris said, people think he's immoral, people think he's weak, the economy is good, but people don't really believe that it's because of him or they haven't, uh, they aren't seeing it yet. Uh, Gingrich is saying that he's a liberal, um, the Republicans are talking about Whitewater, the Republicans are talking about Troopergate, the Republicans are talking about Travelgate, the Washington Post is at him, and it's sort of new technique of adversarial um politics really captured by Newt Gingrich and Newt Gingrich Gingrich even went as far as to try to teach new Republicans how to talk to the media how to talk in Congress what buzzwords to use he was very very granular about creating this new strategy for his uh, emerging house majority and so that 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 wave of Republican youthful energy and power just swept away the Democrats in, in 1994, especially because people didn't really believe that Bill Clinton was doing a, a good job. Well, do we want to touch on the 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 94 Republican revolution now then? Um, probably, probably kind of fits in well. We have quite, quite the change, as Toby kind of 
laid out before us. I believe 54 seats uh, changed hands on the, the Republican Democrat side and quite the quite the swing to see to see a 54 change uh, with Republicans winning 230 to 204. Um, do we want to get maybe have we touched on enough as far as like the actual context behind it? Well, I would say that in terms of the change, the the Republicans hadn't won the House since 1954, and um, because of this, um, Newt Gingrich was made Time Magazine Man of the Year in 1995. Yeah. So it was an incredible <laughs> change. And even the the departing House leader told Gingrich, you know, I'm I'm ending 40 years of democratic dominance in the House. And um, someone shouted, it's a whole new world. And (laughs) Newt Gingrich was, uh, (laughs) you know, the new leader. Bill Clinton even said when he was watching television, it's, it's like, um, Newt Gingrich has replaced the congressional system with a parliamentary system with with Gingrich as the prime minister, which is, you know, is the thing. And if the the American system was a parliamentary system, the House leader would be the leader of the country instead of the president. Mm-hmm. And so Clinton really felt that. But in terms of the strategy in 1994, Gingrich wanted to nationalize these elections. Uh, Tip O'Neill's whole idea previously was that all politics is local. And even though the impression that the national uh, president or national issues can you know can change local elections there was always this idea that you always have to focus on local issues but Gingrich Gingrich was like that's all rubbish we'll we'll nationalize the election Um, we'll focus we'll bring together a legislative plan like it's a general election Um, they focus on things like the fiscal responsibility act taking back the streets act personal responsibility act um, National Security Rest- Restoration Act. All of these acts were very pernicious and um, would, would, you know, crush poor people. And uh, you know, they, they, it, it was, it was the probably the most extreme conservative um, policy plank that had been put forward uh, in an election, probably since since Calvin Coolidge, because even Herbert Hoover wasn't as conservative as Calvin Coolidge, right? So they, it was a real, they really wanted a revolution. And once they got into government, they they started passing these things in the House, although, you know, Clinton was, was vetoing things. Mm-hmm. And um, even in local elections, um, someone would have a particular record, but the, the, the Republican he would be facing would, sent, would put together an ad that said, well, this guy's record is just like the liberal president Bill Clinton's record and list off off things. And it really works because people really did think Bill Clinton was a big spending liberal, was a child of the sixties, was, um, was immoral. And one thing that has to be hatched out is that Gingrich really took the Republicans further than Ronald Reagan had. Although, you know, the Gipper was this um, revolutionary in terms of, uh, changing politics, he was really stopped by a quite strong um, house, which which would wouldn't let him pass anything he wanted um, from the Democrats, who, which who did have a large uh, majority that that Reagan couldn't push against. And Reagan, 
you know, Reagan wasn't that mean of an individual personally. Like people like Gingrich, the the you know propriety or the or civility, all of these things they didn't care about at all. They they fixated on this culture war. You know, as as um, as um, the politics became much more about social issues. Um, they they were very anti-abortion. They were anti the ERA. They thought that the, the Democrats weren't just the Democrats, um, as Vaughn says, you know, focusing on different uh, health care reform and, and the budget and tax and all these, these sort of boring issues. They thought this, that the Democrats were sort of millenarian McGovern cults that was going to change America completely. And this is really the beginning of the thing that we see uh, on Fox News and with mm-hmm. uh, Republican commentators in, in the last 20 years. It's it, it gone from... You know, politics is this thing that's, you know, about um, although the Democrats were focusing on bipartisanship and have been focusing on bipartisanship, it gone from that to actually if they win everything, we lose everything. And that's the the force that Newt Gingrich really brought to conservative politics and brought to American life in 1994. Uh, Vaughn, is there anything you'd like to add? I don't know if you... Um, are more attracted to Newt Gingrich physically or intellectually? <laughs> Bill Clinton was very, very attracted to Newt Gingrich intellectually. Like they would, when they would talk and try to discuss things, Gingrich, he, like he, he would also talk about like the revolution in technology and the move to the knowledge economy, and they would, mm-hmm. they would sit down and chat to each other about it, and um, and some even some of Clinton's staff had said that Bill was so hypnotized by. By New Gingrich, we need to get him out of there because he's just going to give away everything when he's talking. Hypnotized by Newt. Fair enough. Uh, Von, is there, <laughs> is there anything you'd like to add on, on 94? Um, yeah, maybe just a bit. So the the local um, local legislation kind of debate that was happening, they running this kind of nationalized campaign for a midterm election really did um, kind of help state legislatures flip Republican. By 94, um, between 92 and 94, local and mayoral and um, state legislatures, in all of those those elections, they had 20 states flip Republican. Wow. Um, and it was the largest flip that had ever happened um or like in the 20th century at least um towards republicanism for for that scale of of states so they really like it really was a republican revolution at many levels um across the country and local state and federal levels they they also picked up eight seats in the senate which is like a lot of seats yeah and it took like five cycles to unwind as well yeah yeah it wasn't until the the middle of the the noughties or the late late noughties until the the democrats could really put the republican 1994 um revolution Mm -hmm. and then the other thing just to um hone it in for any listeners who do want to go look up some of these acts that newt gingrich was championing it um, he had published the contract with America in 94 that outlined these eight reforms that were just kind of general um, 
reforms for how politics worked and like we need two thirds of a vote for whatever. And then these 10 bills um, and it touted that they were limiting these bills to issues that that called 60% issues where 60% of Americans polled um, in favor of these things. Mm-hmm. And the only one that completely failed, I believe, is the Citizen Legislature Act. And that's really, really interesting because it was a proposed amendment to the Constitution to impose 12-year term limits for Congress. Hmm. And it's the only one of these these 10 that failed completely to pass, even when they held the House um, in 95. So that I think is a very sneaky kind of thing of Newt Gingrich to be like, Americans, you want these these term limits, go for it. And then they're like, psych, we're definitely not doing that. Thanks for the power. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I think that's, I mean, Toby's smashing it. You're you're covering everything here. I'm just kind of sitting back today. Toby is just, I mean, if if anyone was kind of the the groundswell of information on Newt Gingrich, I'm I'm pleased it's Toby. (laughs) (laughs) He has that aura about him. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So, Newt Jr., do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened after the 94 midterms then and the triangulation and the, the what Clinton did next, as it were? I think they were really, really depressed about what happens. And Clinton, you know, he got into politics to be loved and he was just <laughs> want to be loved. <laughs> Solid career plan. <laughs> oh, bless him. And... Um, so he was pondering it. There was a press conference a little later on, I think in April of 95, um, or where Clinton is talking to a reporter and reporters saying, well, you know, the, the, a lot of the news channels aren't really covering this press conference because they think that the head of the government is uh, Newt Gingrich. Uh, how are you going to establish your relevance? And, and Clinton says, well, the, the Constitution gives me relevance. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I always said it in that voice. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still relevant. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, he, could, he basically felt irrelevant. Um, there was um, a a meeting between the, the Clinton staffers where one of the Clinton staffers in the back, um, they were talking about issues, um, the congressional leaders, uh, House congressional leaders, who were liberals basically, wanted Clinton to really push against this um, congr- um, conservative revolution and push for liberal policies and policies to, to help poor people and, and social rights and things like that. And, um, you know, Clinton... He just looked like he wasn't interested. He didn't really care. One of his other staffers said, this is this is meaningless. This doesn't mean anything. And so they called this guy called Dick Morris. And Dick Morris was a pollster who had been with Clinton since 1978. Um, he had been one of the pollsters along with um, uh, Stanley Greenberg, who had put together this whole idea of the Macomb County um voters the reagan democrats who had focused on suburbanites and what suburbanites really felt uh dick morris was 
kind of a conservative. I mean, he he was friends with Trent Law. He he had done polling work for racist Southern candidates in the, in the past. But Kim and Clinton had a relationship and, and Morris basically said that you have to triangulate. You have to try to basically um, take all the policies that, that are popular, that conservatives want, um, try to push and pass them, try to focus on values. Um, there was this big thing that uh, Clinton had usually gone to Martha's Vineyard for a holiday, but instead he went horse riding in Wyoming to try to get you know in touch with the common man. There's another holiday he went on where he went uh, hu- uh, hunting, but he said that these were not uh, automatic rifles that we're using. So you know they're, they're for they're in line with the Brady Bill that we passed. So he <laughs> focused on. Um, it's, it's like the stuff in um, Britain, you know, the ASBO stuff, the, the suburbanite value stuff. He focused on values, on, on, on issues that would help um, people better raise their children to try to get back into the spotlight. One big thing that helped him, because in, in 1995, especially at the beginning, like the, the New Gingrich was the prime minister and they were running the government. But one thing that helped him, and it was an unfortunate thing, was the Oklahoma City bombing uh, when Timothy McVeigh let let, let off uh, an explosion that killed over 100 people, including uh, children. Clinton went over there and he had done what he'd done on the campaign trail. He, he, you know, he held hands, he hugged people, he he tried to feel their pain. He said it was uh, what happened was cowardly and it was evil. And then he also tried to say that, you know, a lot of the anger and the hatred in society, a lot of it is kind of started by us in, in Congress and in government and in, in the media. And we really, really need to let a lot of that energy out. And, and he really empathized with people, which is something that he was good at. You know, one of the reasons why he, he became president, which which gave him a bump in the poll polls. And then there was the budget issue. Uh, Dick Morris came to Clinton and uh, a lot of the liberals, people like uh, Stephanopoulos, uh, Leon Panetta and the congressional um, Democrats, they didn't want to pass any kind of balanced budget, you know, the, the balanced budget that um, was part of the contract with America that um, Newt Gingrich was trying to do in order to create a conflict with the presidency he really wanted to diminish the power of the presidency and he said that if you don't pass my budget there's going to be a government shutdown which was a crazy thing because these things don't usually happen and so the 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 deadline was coming and what dick morris told clinton was what you want to do is let's poll this this budget was the and this uh the balanced budget idea and dick morris found out the American public are really center right. Like they want a balanced budget, but if you, but they also like their Medicare and Medicaid, which Gingrich was trying to cut and take away from them. So what you want to do is produce your own budget, your own balanced budget, which liberals in the uh, party were completely against, but Clinton produced his own balanced budget, but didn't cut Medicare and Medicaid. And, but Gingrich was against that. He fought, Clinton uh, on that there was eventually there was um, a government shutdown in 
the fall um, in November and December, uh, where a lot of government workers were furloughed and not paid. And um, but Gingrich was also Gingrich actually wanted to compromise and Clinton wanted to compromise. And but um, they Gingrich was pushed by the more conservative people in his caucus and Clinton was pushed by the liberals in his caucus. And Clinton was giving Gingrich a lot of compromises. But when Gingrich really, really wanted him to compromise on Medicare and Medicaid, and to, and for the length of time it would take, I think it was seven years for, for the budget uh, to be balanced, Clinton pushed back because he pushed back because Dick Morris told him to push back and he pushed back and eventually um, it broke the Republicans. Bob Dole replaced Gingrich in terms of negotiating and eventually they opened up the government and passed um, Bill Clinton's own compromise uh, budget on um, there was also welfare, the the welfare uh, the welfare bill, the welfare to work bill. Clinton Clinton was um, basically a center right um, Republican mm. in Arkansas, <laughs> and he always wanted to pass uh, uh, um, a welfare reform that would take people off the welfare rolls. You know, after a, a year or two years or so, but would take people off the welfare rolls and make them work. And the only way they can get welfare is if they worked, you know. It was, um, the economic theory was always like this, this employment trap thing that the that, that center-right people were, were obsessed with in the, in the early 90s. But, and so Clinton, um, the Republicans sent him bills that were even more pernicious and even more right-wing than, than, his, than Clinton's own ideas, which Clinton vetoed. But eventually Clinton signed, signed the welfare bill that the the dole the, the third one the dole uh, sent over to him mm. and um but then i add which even included kicking uh immigrants off of uh welfare but i get i guess um a number of democrats um who had worked for clinton resigned because of this mm. uh, uh the Speaker of the House voted against um, the, the minority leader of the House, Democrat minority voter against Clinton's welfare reform bill. But uh, by this time, you know, Clinton's passed the crime bill. He's passed NAFTA. He's passed the welfare reform bill. Mm-hmm. He's basically pushed through the center right agenda that he had come to Washington to do, apart from his um, middle-class uh, tax cut, and apart from the healthcare, but both of those were more, you know, for non-rich people. Mm-hmm. And so effectively, yeah, he, 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 he was successful. He was popular by, by now. He was polling quite well. Gingrich's popularity was plummeting, especially because of the government shutdown. So he was popular. He passed uh, his welfare reform and his number of legislative reforms. He was also thinking about um, a, a grand compromise on Social Security, but I mean, because of the Monica Lewinsky thing in 1998, he, he couldn't do that. But yeah, so I mean, Clinton was he was he's very successful center right president. I mean, we should just <laughs> okay. That was, I don't know what else to say. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, 
Is there anything more to add? I would just like to say that um, we have actually set up a GoFundMe for um, Toby's one-man play on the 1994 midterms. <laughs> so look out for more voices and characters from Toby in uh, in that. Uh, I can do a really good Trent Law. Like, <laughs> I'm working on it. It's good. <laughs> uh, Okay, um, we do have to look ahead to the 96 election, mainly because it brings Vaughn's boy back into the scene. Mm, yes. Is, is there anything we'd like to add, or Vaughn, you'd specific, specifically like to add on Clinton prior to 96, or should we just dive do straight you, in? Do you want to know what my notes are on triangulation? I only have three words under triangulation. Go for it. It's more centrism. More centrism. That's it. <laughs> it's, just, That's... it's just more centrism. I guess the funny thing about this is that is it triangulation? Because Dick Morris had been with um, Clinton since Arkansas. Clinton was the chair of the New Democrats. He like a lot of people in the media was like, "Oh, Clinton's triangulating, triangulating." And Dick Morris did call the budget thing triangulation. But Clinton believed in all a lot of the things that he passed. Like he's not. It wasn't like he was pushed by the Republicans. What the House, the losing of the House and the Senate did in 1994, it meant it removed all the liberals that were pushing him left and allowed Clinton to, in my opinion, be in his element. Yeah, be his natural yeah. self. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess he, he might have preferred to go to Martha's Vineyard instead of doing that weird vacation yes. in Wyoming, maybe. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> Outside of that, yeah. Uh, all right. Let, let, yeah, let, let's go into the 96 election. Yes. And as you'll remember it from the 92 uh, show, and in fact, when we were doing the one-term presidents episode, mm-hmm. uh, 92 was different than 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 really the, the, the ones that had come before as far as elections were concerned because we actually had a genuine third-party candidate. And even though we didn't... Genuine. Pick- Genuine, <laughs> genuine of sorts. Um, he won millions of votes. I think technically, yes, he did. Uh, I, I don't think he won any seats, but he 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 won or any any actual electoral votes. But he did actually win millions of actual votes. And coming around to ninety six, you're wondering, you know, is 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 the return of parole going to be good news or bad news for Clinton? Um, Vaughn, do you want to just let go at the ninety six election and just? <laughs> Have the audience <laughs> hear joy in your voice as you like, talk about Ross Perot again. It's so much joy because, like, like on you was go. It, was it good or bad news? Come on, it was good for everyone. It was good for everybody. It's so good. So <laughs> Ross Perot in '95, yes, formed a party, the Reform Party, that is still active-ish today. <laughs> um, like in massive air quotes, they have run candidates such as Pat Buchanan, who also ran in this election um, mm-hmm. for the Republican nomination and did not get it. They've run Ralph Nader. Donald Trump was a member of the Reform Party in 2000 <laughs> during his presidential campaign. So like already what a great group. <laughs> like, I love it. So he forms this the Reform Party in 95. And then by 90, six when they have to put a candidate forward for the nomination he quote had had difficulty finding a candidate so one member they they kind of like corralled someone to put his name in for the nomination and that person was Richard Lamb who was a former governor of Colorado 
And the next day, Ross Perot was like, well, if no one else wants the nomination, <laughs> I'm going to put my name in. And Richard Lamb was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what is this? Amazing. All of that's great. Um, he was limited to $50,000 of self-funding because of his escapades in 92, because he just like balled out and spent a whole bunch of money like Bloomberg did mm-hmm. last year of just like, let's whip out my wallet and see what happens. And I'm going to act like the craziest person you've ever seen. Um, so he's limited in funding. And because of that, he had really low coverage. And this is an absolute travesty. He was excluded from every presidential debate. That is a travesty for entertainment. Like C-SPAN could have been doing so much better if they started making politics entertaining in the 90s. Um, and then the last thing with Pearl, and then we can move on to like real stuff or whatever. Um, <laughs> he, he accepted an invitation from Al Gore in November 1993. So before, like the first year of the Clinton presidency, three years before this um, election, he accepts an invitation by Al Gore to go on Larry King Live and debate with Al Gore about NAFTA. And his appearance on Larry King Live was so abysmal that public support for NAFTA went from 34% to 57% overnight. (laughs) (laughs) And then he still decided to run for president in 96. Fantastic. He was right. He was right. He was right about NAFTA. He's right about everything. (laughs) (laughs) I love this guy. He's just, he's like, Reading about politics can get kind of droll or, or kind of dull, not droll, but it can get dull and you're like, nah, I don't really like this. And then you see, you come across Ross Perot and it's just like, like mind blowing. He's like the David Bowie of 90s politics. Just <laughs> <laughs> makes me happy that he existed. <laughs> so Ross Perot won then, that, that's what you're telling us. Yeah, in my heart, yes. Ross Perot won and everything's been fine since. <laughs> Yes. No, he didn't, unfortunately. He didn't. So who um, did win in 96 one? Um Clinton did. He did. Clint- Clinton won. Um, it was between Clinton and Bob Dole, ultimately. Uh Democrats and Republican. Who who but I first again Ross about. Perot was still there. He did, <laughs> yes, Ross Perot. In fact, Ross Perot and Bob Dole, I first learned about both of them from The Simpsons. So they have a special yeah. special place in my heart because of that. Um, do we want to talk too much more about the 96 election? I mean, we, we, I suppose it's worth mentioning the fact, you know, Republicans won in 94 and then a Republican candidate won in 96 because Bill Clinton won. So, um, no, um, I suppose technically Bill Clinton was a Democratic candidate in 96, but as Toby kind of laid out before us, he was sort of a... He was a Republican. He was a Republican. Um... Toby, any any thoughts on the 96 election and how Clinton was able to win? I mean, it was it was an exhibition, really. I mean, Clinton knew sort of he was going to win, especially after the government shutdown. I think Gingrich who set up after the 1994 midterms. He set up the shutdown as this 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 hedge point and this test of uh, Clinton's mantle. And Clinton he basically come through the test. Uh, his popularity is shut up. Gingrich's has fallen. 
Um, Dole was sort of uh, dithering. Dole actually started to hate Gingrich, and he never really liked Gingrich. Dole was a, sort of more of a moderate. He didn't really like. Um, and then Gingrich started to be a drag on the Republicans. So uh, Dole tried to distance himself from, from Gingrich. Um, he had um, is a Jack Kemp yeah. as his running mate, who was a former um, NFL player. And uh, Kemp had this um, uh, a big tax cut, but Dole wanted to balance the budget, so um, they found that difficult to really put together. And then at the convention, I mean, Clinton basically said it. You know, like the economy was roaring, like. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, 4.4 million Americans um, can now own uh, new homes, a record number of um, small businesses starting up, lowest unemployment rate in 28 years. Um, people aren't losing their health insurance if they uh, if they have a job and then go to a different job. Well, I mean, if, 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 if they didn't have a job, they didn't have health insurance, but, you know. Um, <laughs> there's 12 million people taking advantage of family and medical leave, uh, 10 million students saved money of their, their college loans. He said all of this at the convention, and it was true. All of it was true. Um, the economy was roaring. He, he, was, he was doing a good job. It was being perceived um, in foreign affairs. He had um, helped intervene in the, in the Kosovo crisis um, to some success. Uh, at least it was perceived as success by the international um, community. And uh, I think that the whole 1992 campaign was run on, it's the economy stupid, but this um, campaign was run on much more like it's, 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 it's about values. They, they, they fixed, mm. uh, fixated on, as I uh, talked about before, sort of middle-class suburban values, you know, things about how to raise your children, um, had Clinton do a lot of, um, things and take a lot of pictures with people like this and uh, try to seem like he was um, down home. Again, it, it, politics was no longer about interests. You know, like there was, there was a working class and um, upper class interests and, you know, Lyndon Johnson had uh, barged people and fought people and um Basically, he Johnson would always like say, you know, if you didn't do this for me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this to you. I'm gonna make sure you don't have this thing or you have that. You know, Clinton wasn't playing that kind of politics anymore. People like Dick Morris, like Mark Penn, um, Stanley Greenberg, they focus focus much more on polling, and they just try to give people things that weren't really political. You know. Seatbelts, um, other issues, um, you know, it was just things like that. It was the the um, class struggle was 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 finished, was sublimated. It was the end of history. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say. Dole couldn't, he couldn't handle any of this. It was it was a procession, and Clinton didn't get over fifty percent. Probably because of, uh, of of Ross Perot, but yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he was the he he met he met the moment um, in 1996. Yes, and um, I would just like to 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 add that 
one of the things Vaughn texted me earlier, as I should have mentioned this during the, the 94 side of things, is Vaughn couldn't uh, believe that such a person called Dick Army was a real <laughs> person. And I would just like to say that, thank God, the uh, Sage deal was already signed before we start talking about that. It's funny, like all of the people, a lot of the people in this period are still around today. Mm-hmm. Either they're still in Congress or they're still alive. So, you know, I mean, it's yeah. not it's not that far well, away. I mean, one of them became president. So Yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, um, John Kasich. Kasich was really big yeah. on balancing the budget uh, in the Clinton era and really pushed for that. And that's that's sort of the world that John Kasich comes from. So when he talks about his, you know, center right republicanism, he's really just talking about this this golden period of of bipartisanship and um, people like Joe Scarborough. Scarborough was in Congress. You know, I think he was part of the he was part of the freshman class um, that was brought in, or maybe slightly earlier um, by by Newt Gingrich and. Um, Again, they were for balancing the budget. Clinton had a, a surplus um, in the budget. Um, I know FDR had um, run in 1932 on balancing the budget, but you know he realized there was a crisis, and he you know he spent money in a crisis and things like that. But they they weren't interested in doing things like that anymore. The world had changed. It was a successive um, monetarism. It was a successive William F. Buckley. Um, yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's just, they, yeah. they won. They they beat. They, they we won, but they won. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and as you say, it's not that long ago because you you look at people of the last four years who've been the most politically kind of center stage, and you've got you've got a Clinton, you've got Bernie Sanders, you've got Trump, who was obviously around at this time, mm-hmm. you've got Biden, who won now. Um, I mean, the part I mean, Gingrich the- ran into twenty twelve, didn't he, for mm-hmm. president? Yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ. Um, uh, right. I have. Do you want to go? Sorry. Just quickly before we move on. Um, in in researching this kind of stuff, so the top three Republicans who um, polled or who won double digits of the primary races were Bob Dole with like fifty eight percent, and then Pat Buchanan. With 20% and Steve Forbes with 11%. And I was thinking about it. And do you guys think that there's a, like, I can think of a lot of Republicans who put forward conservative columnists like Pat Buchanan or Steve Forbes of Forbes magazine mm-hmm. um, as candidates. And they also have like Reagan coming from Hollywood and Schwarzenegger and all of like, the, like, what I'm saying is they have a lot of media people. And I can't really think of any liberals or Democrats who come specifically from a media mm. or columnist or commentator, political commentator background. That's a and good it, point. It, it's just this like weird kind of trend with Republicans now, especially as people are talking about how Tucker Carlson is is putting himself forward or or making moves to kind of run in mm-hmm. the future. Yeah, I mean that that is that weird, is right. That is fascinating. I, I would say that um, in the 70s and the 80s, you had a lot of successful uh, conservative columnists. I mean, even mm-hmm. the New Republic went from being quite liberal to being very conservative. Um, the New Republic pushed against the healthcare reform um, 
Bill Crystal, who's still, you know, Bill Crystal's still around. Everyone knows Bill Crystal's still around. Uh, people like George Will, um, Forbes, uh, a lot of those people, um, they, what they, I mean, people thought that they had won the argument on policy and um, they became celebrities. Um, you had a lot of celebrities uh, like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Ronald Reagan. But yeah, it is weird that liberal media people didn't really venture into politics in the same I, way. I think it's weird that Republicans did. Yeah. Not well, that liberals didn't, really. No, but I, I was just saying that I think the, the, the liberal media people were less successful in that yeah, period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get you. So that's probably part of the reason. I don't know. I don't know if it's totally the reason. You know, I don't know why kind of they they fell in love with all these. I mean, even like Pat Robinson, right? I mean, it's just it's a, mm. a media yeah. person. Democrats do seem to like the sort of tried and tested politician approach rather than mm-hmm. the. Well, I, I think or Democrats really have developed. Sorry, I think Democrats have developed somewhat because I mean Clinton had this personal story, but the Democrats now seem to like like professional people like Barack Obama who's like you know like a corporate lawyer type professional people who are who are smart they 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 seem to like that a lot and it, it hasn't always been the same i guess because Jimmy Carter was president uh Linda Johnson was president um harry truman was president you know and um people like adelaide stevenson who was kind of that that professional you know thinking candidate he he lost when he ran against eisenhower so i I guess they've developed more sort of professional credentialed candidates who kind of reflect the kind of um constituents that have moved when the democrats moved to the center right you know they got a lot more sort of um uh, knowledge economy people mm. into the party and i, and I suppose yeah. those people's aesthetics are now reflected in the party in the way that they, they used to be although i can imagine those people would have really loved um jfk for example but mm. but i think it's changed towards that why the republicans have become more and more media heavy for some reason and there you know there's some things about successful um prestige media people like forbes and um and people like that but then they've also taken media media people like ronald reagan and mm. donald trump and matt robinson and, yeah it is really interesting i think it's I wonder what that is partly you, you can also be less qualified just in the media than you might have to be at a professional level I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, you think what might be required to be an academic, you know, you you need to have some sort of level of uh, accreditation that, um, you know, I don't think certain people yeah. on, on the right to get into the media, you know, I don't think Rush Limbaugh uh, is, you know, or, you know, any of these types of people are going to become, you know, scholars of um, whatever theory it is they're pushing forward, you know, they're much more likely simply to quote-unquote reach the ordinary man rather mm-hmm. than 
um, teach a class on economics or history or whatever. Yeah, and then I think like people like Pete or Cory Booker, they like you know that they're Rhodes scholars, like you know because they they tell you that they are. But like people like even like Republicans who are kind of like that, like Ted Cruz, they don't really advertise that. Toby, you have to put money in the Pete Buttigieg jar because you were the first one to raise him. And today, <laughs> <laughs> he was just a little zygote in this. <laughs> yeah, like, he did. Baby, yeah, club. he wasn't really around yet. Yeah. I okay. Just, I do think it's interesting, though. It I'm is. Gonna, I'm going to keep harping on this one. one yeah, more that, time. That's, um, a, that's, a, that's a good one. On you go, Vaughn. You had something else, Dad. They, the Republicans like that aren't professional politicians. <laughs> <In general. laughs> Yes, that's a sentence right there. Um, but the the ones that aren't professional politicians by like trade, they really t- like a lot of them tend to be either columnists or now like mm-hmm. um, talking head or like editorial writers and and podcasters and you talking heads. Yeah, like you said. Um, but then Democrats who are non professional politicians. They tend to be like teachers or scientists or like mm-hmm. like medical doctors, mm. and it, that's it's a it's just a weird trend. And I I'm Are speaking you very generally. About ben Carson, Vaughn. <laughs> Never. I I want everyone to know that Simon compared me to Ben Carson <laughs> two days in a row. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, I won't necessarily go into the full details, but Vaughn did actually agree with me. So, yeah, uh, so, so, I, so I sort of know why the Democrats want those kinds of people, like credentialed, competent people. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I they're credentialed and competent. I'm not completely sure. Because the, cause in this period, you are having more sort of credentialed people. I mean, even like teachers who don't make very much, but, you know, they have college degrees. Yeah. becoming democrats and then in the same time you're having more sort of less wealthy people becoming republicans Mm -hmm. the the people like rush limbaugh can appeal to but it isn't like in this time democrats total voters are wealthier than republican voters Mm. it's just i think it seems like the Republicans tried to target less wealthy people, I guess, on based on social issues. Mm-hmm. So maybe they had, they thought the media people could do this better. They saw the success of Ronald Reagan and they thought media could, people could do this better than the kind of um, preppy uh, Ivory League nerds Republicans. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, who were also. Some of them nerds, like the Democrats themselves in yeah. the past. I suppose. And, and maybe that's like H.W. Bush, he, you know, he had that kind of background, but he failed, didn't he? He lost. Like yeah. he, he was one term president. So people, they stopped having people like that. I think even, our- like George, even like George Bush, George Bush has a similar background to his father, but he pretended to be like uh, the guy next door, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. I think part of it is there has been an anti intellectual there has been an anti-intellectual movement in the West over the last 30 years or whatever time period it is where you only have to look at something like COVID where, you know, people quote unquote, don't trust scientists, you know, Mm -hmm. because I'd rather 
hear what some talking head says that it's a microchip or it's, you know, Bill Gates going to give me AIDS or whatever ridiculous thing it is this week, rather than listening to a doctor or a scientist. And I, I do think there is an, an element of the anti-intellectual taking over the right. And we kind of discussed this a little bit, you know, when we when we talked about the best of enemies the documentary that, you know, there aren't there aren't many kind of great thinkers on the right right now. You know, we've got Ben Shapiro who who is held up as this some sort of savant of the right because he's able to tie his shoes. Mm. And I I think I think we can see that in the types of politicians who are drawn. I mean, Donald Trump isn't gonna wasn't ever gonna become a Democrat, you know. The, these these types of sort of media celebrity people aren't going to go to a party where you need to prove some sort of academic or at least some sort of intellectual um, test in order to to be taken seriously. And, and, and even the people that have it, that play it down, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I also think there's an element of Republicans can target the sort of disgruntled uh, working class voters with these types of people in the safe knowledge that their voting base is kind of more solidified than the democratic like i always get the feeling that republicans will vote for republicans even if they don't like them just because they hate democrats whereas democrats feel that they need to like go on like three dates with their democratic candidates feel whether or not they've got a soul connection with them or something like that which is how it should work yeah but and then that then one and what happens is that you know you get uh, Donald Trump becoming president because everyone's like, oh, actually, I'll vote for Jill Stein. Um, so, I mean, you, you are right, Vaughn. In an ideal world, people would actually vote for people they like oh, rather yeah, than yeah. some fallback option. But yeah, like they, they, I thought it was something like the Democrats are like hyper anxious and like I, I need to be com- uh, seem competent and seem like I know what I'm doing. And the Republicans are like, you're just, just fucking wing it. Like, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, we're going to vote for this guy. He seems to hate like abortions and stuff. That's fine. Whatever. You know, yeah. So yeah. It, it's all good. Right. And, and I, yeah. And I think it's, it's about the voters that they were targeting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, because the, the truth is even right in the elections that we're just covering, like the, the Republicans were still the party of people who were teachers and lawyers and academics and stuff like that still in this, in this point, but for some reason, because of the social, I think the social issues may be super important because social issues became political. Um, uh, Then I, I think a lot of people who weren't particularly fiscally liberal sort of saw the Democrats as um, something that appealed to them, uh, even though they had money. And then some people who weren't super rich and maybe weren't even super fiscally conservative saw the Republicans were appealing to their values, um, even if they weren't like super educated and stuff. So I, I guess that's probably wh- why... Um, it's probably not enough of an explanation, but I think it it gets to why the the candidates sort of look different now. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, Bill Clinton was kind of both, wasn't he? He was, um, yeah. although like he was a Rhodes Scholar, you know, everything like that. He was also a little bit of a greasy guy. Um, <laughs> when he came into the White House, people said, "Oh, like." He, 
he's a little bit of a used car salesman type you know um he wasn't he wasn't i mean he was polished because he had this great education and he was he had been a um governor but he wasn't as polished as um the hw bush for example Mm -hmm. and so that you did have that contrast then but that that and then even with Robert Dole, you still had a moderate Republican who kind of had um, sort of a similar background to former former Republicans. Um, but yeah, I, and I guess like people like Gerald Ford and um, even like Richard Nixon, they were more polished politicians because I guess because of the kinds of people that they were appealing to and then maybe Bill Clinton is sort of in the middle because the it's changing. So he's kind of both. And then H.W. Uh, H. Bush has to pretend to be like the, the 1988 campaign when Bush is um, running against Dukakis and says the, the Dukakis is a is a, you know, like an upper class liberal Massachusetts liberal. But Dukakis. Um, parents were immigrants and H.W. Bush's grandfather was an investment banker and his father was a senator and blah, blah, blah. But H.W. Bush has to pretend, you know? Mm-hmm. And I guess they sort of stop pretending and then, you know, there's, there's Donald Trump, isn't there? Yeah. Um, it also, we should really move on, but it also did remind me of when we were talking about Bush there. It just reminded me of Vaughn's utter joy when describing the 92 election and George Bush just being so confused as to what the fuck was going on. Uh, <laughs> uh, right, okay. Um, we have a special guest joining us to talk about Waco. It's Ben Carson. Oh, wait, no, sorry, it's just Vaughn. Um, uh, Vaughn, you teased us uh, earlier on the episode about uh, diving into a subject which was kind of off topic to some degree, but sort of tangentially related to uh to, to the research um it was to do with waco um i can't spoil that now do you want to just say words until you've you're happy is that the best way to go with this with waco <laughs> yeah sure that sounds really messed up because waco is a travesty like, like the okay so what happened in waco and the part that's actually relevant to what we have just talked about for an hour and whatever is the Waco siege. Um, And this happened in February to April. It was a 51 day siege in 1993. So there was this group of people, the Branch Davidians, which we will get into, but the Branch Davidians um, had this, this compound essentially right outside of Waco, Texas. And a um, article was published that they there were all sorts of crimes going on at the the compound and one of those crimes was an illegal stockpiling of weapons so the bureau of alcohol tobacco and firearms atf they go in with search warrants and arrest warrants and the branch davidians over open fire and then kill four atf officers so the fbi comes in and they lay siege for 51 days these people were so stockpiled that they could carry on with the FBI for 51 days. And ultimately they set fire to their own compound um, and 82 members in total died 
including women, children, pregnant women. Um, it was it was a travesty, and the aftermath of that was this this was a pretty large contributing factor to the crime bill that we talked about earlier. So that's that's what Waco is now. The tangent is who exactly these Branch Davidians were. And this is what brought you, you joy, not, not the actual Waco thing. Yeah, Waco Waco's a horrible thing, but this part is bananas. Yep. And it is just, it's wild. So, like, buckle up. Okay. <laughs> so the, the Davidians were a group that were formed in around the 50s um, in Texas, and they they founded themselves around Waco, Texas. They went through a couple iterations and branches off and everything. And the Branch Davidians are the ones who are very important here. So in 1984, the leader of the Branch Davidians passes away. And his widow decided that her son, um, with the surname Rodin, so I'm going to talk about Rodin and Howell, which is important. There are, There's a lot of people here, but Rodin and Howell, Howell are the main people that we need to discuss. So the former leader's son, Rodin. Um, the widow decides that he is too crazy to run this religious organization. And she has been grooming someone named Vernon Howell. So they decide that um, the, the best way to do this is to split the group because Rodin will not give up control over the this religious sect. Also, I should mention that the reason that they were so, stock, so stockpiled was that um, the Branch Davidians believed that the apocalypse was coming and that they were God's chosen people and needed to stockpile weapons and food and everything for the apocalypse. So Rodin and Howell, they split in 84 when Rodin runs Howell and his followers off of the compound with gunfire. The, the widow Rodin's mom passes away in 1987 and Howell tries to gain control. And this is where everything gets super bananas. So Rodin, he decides that the best way to settle all of this, this kind of back and forth dispute with gunfire all the time um, between him and Howell's group, the best way to to decide who is divinely right um, for leading these people is that he dug up a corpse from the compound cemetery and challenged Howell to a quote, resurrection contest to see which one could bring this poor woman's corpse back to life. And Howell immediately goes to the police and reports Rodin for charges of defiling a corpse. The police refused to to charge him with this without proof because they're like, the hell is this call that we're getting? So Howell takes seven friends to the chapel on the compound to get pictures of the casket um, as incriminating evidence. And Rodent open fires on them. So they have their like thousandth by this point gunfight. Um, and the judge calls and tells Howell to stand down and surrender. So. Howell and his seven friends get arrested for attempted murder in April 1988, and they're all in court 
They're all in court trying to prove that they were there for a reason, which is that Rodin was defiling a corpse. So they drag the casket into the courtroom and the defense attorney requests it be used as evidence. And the judge was like, he had to pass a ruling. He had to rule that a courtroom is no place for a casket. And he made Howell and his friends carry the casket out of the court courthouse. During all of this, Rodin admits in court that he tried to resurrect the corpse on three separate occasions. <laughs> and he was found in contempt of court for um, outlandish outbursts and foul language and for telling the entire court that he will give them sexually transmitted diseases if they rule in Howell's favor. So, so the seven were acquitted and Howell's, uh, there, there was a hung jury for Howell's charges. Now, Rodin is jailed for another six months because of these, these outright, like um, his contempt of court and other kind of outrageous stuff that he was doing. And he refused to stop calling himself a leader of a religious group, even though he was court ordered to do that um, a decade ago, but he just kept doing it. So he was in jail for all of these kind of violations. And then in 1989, when he's out of jail, like a year after all of this other stuff went down with the, the corpse and the casket, a follower of this very religious sect, sect sorry, that, um, <laughs> that are stockpiling for Jesus's second coming. One of his followers comes to him and he's like, listen, I had this vision. I spoke to God and God told me that I am the Messiah. I'm the second coming. And Rodin immediately murders him with an ax, which I shouldn't be laughing, but it's just, this is so absurd that like, that's your whole religion, my guy, you're waiting for the second coming and someone comes to you and says it and then you murdered him with an ax. <laughs> Um, well, then they he, killed Jesus for basically the same thing. So maybe he was a Messiah. That that is true. He, he could have been, and we'll he, never know. We'll never know. Um, but this guy pled insanity and went to a mental hospital. Meanwhile, Howell comes back, and he has raised enough money to pay the back taxes that Rodin had incurred um, on for on the the compound property, and immediately after he takes control of the compound and the religion, he puts out an audio tape called New Light. And it's telling all of the followers of the Branch Davidians that God told him to procreate with the women in the group to establish the quote, House of David of his quote, special people. Um, and what this audio tape said God told him to do is to tell them that all of the married couples have to, get se have to separate and all of the women have to agree to having sex with him and him alone while all of the men observe celibacy. And also he said that God told him they need to start building quote, an army for God, which is, which is the thing. Now coming back around to everything else, ending the, the tangent. So this, this article that was published in 93 that prompted the ATF to go to this this compound and lay siege and everything was called the sinful messiah and it was published in the Waco Tribune Herald um I'm gonna read just the first opening couple sentences 
So, quote, if you are a Branch Davidian, Christ lives on a threadbare piece of land 10 miles east of here called Mount Carmel. He has dimples, claims a ninth grade education, married his legal wife when she was 14, enjoys a beer now and then, plays a mean guitar, reportedly packs a nine millimeter Glock, and keeps an arsenal of military assault rifles and willingly admits that he is a sinner without equal. And the article goes on to claim that Howell has, is allowed to have up to 140 brides. Um, he's accused of polygamy, uh, sexual abuse, child brides of 12 and 13 years old. It is absolutely wild. Yeah. And it was important to talk about this in terms of that. It was important for me. I don't think it was important for anyone else, but this I mean, was just a wild, wild ride. Just, oof. I mean, if, if nothing else, we brought joy to your life on. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think we should be thankful that you're so happy that you got to. <laughs> to, to <laughs> like, I want a series of this. This is just wild, messy drama. Yeah. And I'm curious about it. Like if and Tiger just, King could do co so well, I want I want some Branch Davidian stuff. I, I do think that there was this increase in militia groups and groups of this kind during the Clinton administration for, for whatever mm -hmm. reason, you know. Uh, when he signed the Brady Bill, you had um, the NRA against him and you had a number of um, civil society groups who weren't happy about it. And then you had this sort of wellspring of crazies and militia groups, and, and which, which do seem to crop up under Democratic presidents instead of Republican presidents, generally. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I wonder if there is actually a correlation in, in numbers between the, the right-wing groups that pop up and uh, when Democrats are in, in charge. Um, I fear to ask if we should add anything more to this podcast, considering <laughs> what we've just been talking about. Um, we were originally in the first couple of hours of this show talking about Bill Clinton. And uh, honestly, I'm not sure. I can't even remember my own name after the last 20 minutes or so trying to listen and keep up with all that craziness. Um, we should probably just conclude that, uh, yeah, we are doing a third episode on uh, Bill Clinton, which will look at the, the Monica Lewinsky side of things. To conclude this episode, um, yeah, we, we have basically uh, Clinton winning 96, uh, cementing himself as a Republican hero, and um, <laughs> then giving the 96 um, State of the Union and saying that the famous line, the, the era of big government is over. So um, that kind of sets up, up very nicely for kind of what comes later with, with the Monica Lewinsky side of things. Uh, do you guys have anything else to add for this episode um, or should we just wrap it up? I don't know. I think um, we got all of um, what Clinton had managed to do um, wrapped up quite nicely in this episode. I mean, I, I think I'm always in two minds about this. I sort of think if you had a more liberal president in there, maybe maybe they would have lost in um in nineteen ninety six. Having I mean this Clinton's first term was what four from a 
you know, a period of like 20 years. Um, so four from 20 years, I mean, that's, that's a lot. They, they, they really had to adapt to the Republicans, um, to, I guess, a, a growing conservative um, sort of suburban middle-class voter that be- began to control both parties. And I guess maybe uh, felt more in control and um, more confident about itself. Um, I don't know if they're, they're as as confident as they were back in the 90s, but they were, and Clinton sort of lived under those constraints as we talked about um, earlier in the episode. But then I also think that there's a reason why we call him a center-right president is because, you know, he kind of believed in a lot of the stuff that he <laughs> put, put through, you know. I mean, it was the chair of the the New Democrats and people like Al Frum were complaining after 1994 midterm saying you, you're you're not as right wing as we thought you were you know? <laughs> when we when you worked with us so I mean yeah I mean Clinton Clinton's a quite interesting interesting guy because I don't think oh I think Obama what Obama sort of did is he never tried to he never tried to communicate that this is how he felt about policies. Even if he made triangulations and it was pragmatic, he he sort of all, always kept this this feeling that you know he was more left wing than people gave him credit for, or or he he was under the constraints of the Republicans, uh, things like that. Yeah. So I mean. Clinton sort of sits. I mean, although Obama's the the closest analog to him, he, he sort of sits um, on his own as a as really a you know so the, the Southern Democrat who was quite he was quite you know center right, but he was the Democratic president, and it is a sort of almost like a bit of a time capsule because it is a moment that I don't know. Um, that hasn't been repeated yet uh, completely, and you you have to go as far back as probably. Well, I mean, not even like Woodrow Wilson. He was a he was a progressive. You probably have to go back as far as maybe go over Cleveland. I don't know, like, <laughs> to find someone like this. So yeah, he was a special boy. But I mean, I, I would have voted for Bill Clinton in in ninety um, two and probably ninety six as well because I think. It was important that the Democrats could win elections and could be seen as governing because they they just weren't winning elections and you know maybe they would have gone the way of the Whigs or something if you know if, um, if Bill Clinton hadn't been there. So I mean, yeah, there's good points and bad points, I suppose. Uh, Vaughn, any any final thoughts on Clinton on this episode, or shall we shall we let you get back to Waco research? <laughs> just just um reiterating toby from earlier he was socially liberal but politically conservative i think that really sums it all up nice well i think that's uh, a good point to leave it then um yeah i guess we'll uh, we'll have another episode for you in the near future i'm st- sorry i'm still trying to get Waco out of my head um <laughs> um and I also just saw that Mitch McConnell is going to vote to acquit Trump, so that's a nice, um, mm-hmm. nice extra what? bombshell to add to the end of this episode. Uh, right, mm-hmm. so, yeah. <laughs> so, 
Sorry, I've set, I've set Vaughn off again. You uh, you gave me Perot, and you let me talk about the tangents, and then you just drop the bomb of that on me. Come on, Simon. Drop the turtle. Okay. Uh, yep. Okay. <laughs> well, um, from, from Toby, from Vaughn, from myself, and from Mitch McConnell, um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we will have another episode for you in the near future. Um, take care, and goodbye. And goodbye. Bye.